You're listening to Green Biz Radio, the voice of GreenBiz.com, bringing you news and analysis on business, the environment, and the bottom line. For Green Biz Radio, I'm Matthew Wieland. Last month, Co-op America hosted its fifth annual Green Business Conference here in San Francisco, bringing together innovators from businesses of all sizes to share ideas and experiences about the greening of business. Betsy Rosenberg, host of EcoTalk and Green2Go, visited the show and filed this report for Green Biz Radio. I have with me two people who just spoke to our conference attendees. They are telling us about where the market is right now for growing green businesses. Danny Rubenstein and Janet DiGiovanna, if I pronounced that correctly. You did. They are both principals with Dash Advisory Group, and they have been tracking natural products for more than 20 years. And uh, this is a great green moment, is it not? Yes, um, as I had just remarked in uh, Danny's and mine's presentation, for me and Danny, this is harvest time because we have been a part of this industry for 20 years. Tilling the soil. Tilling the soil. And so we were the early, we, we're the early settlers. Mm-hmm. And so for us to see the growth of this industry, especially in the last two years, is just so gratifying. And even month by month in the last year, it's been, it feels exponential in terms of growth and interest and talk, and I imagine there's a lot of new green businesses sprouting up or trying to. What's happening is that not only are the people that were sort of uh, pioneers in the industry being able to grow their businesses successfully and profitably, but there's many, many people in a whole variety of industries that are recognizing that green is going to be the cost of entry going forward, that they need to be competitive on all levels, but if they don't have this component in their mix, uh, they're going to probably be passed over. And I should say we're doing this podcast for both GreenBiz.com and Greener World Media. And what about those pioneers? Um, I was doing Green Media 10 years ago, and nobody was listening, it seemed, for the last, the nine years prior to this past year. Are pioneers always at an advantage? Or you mentioned something about there can be actually a decrease in value if you are an early adopter. Well, you know, I mean, if you are someone who is the the innovator, um, certainly... With that territory comes a certain degree of um, what I would call disadvantage because you're a light in the darkness. And so that's just the nature of the beast. I mean, mm-hmm. that's what it is. Mm-hmm. And so you have to have a certain, your own light, if you would, to actually generate your own light, generate your own light in order to sustain that. However, because you are the early, early adopters, it's the most exciting time. Mm-hmm. And so for us, when we were just getting started and when Danny was developing Naked Juice and, uh, you know, the supermarket industry just said, well, this is a fad and it's never going to work, you know, it takes that own individual light to say, well, that might be your truth, but it's not mine. That's why this is such an exciting moment because for those of us who have known that the future was green or not at all, it's now becoming evident to the mainstream, the masses. Yeah, I would say, to follow on your point, that the awareness level has simply been rising. And with a greater awareness, people can reflect and say, well, I value these things more. Given a choice, I would prefer this. And now it's convenient, and now it's available, and now it's affordable, and it's cool. I mean, there's no reason not to. You gave a talk with a great title, How to Rise with the Tide Without Getting All Wet. The tide is rising, and I think the um, you know eco-tide will lift all boats that are willing to get in the water. What percentage, roughly, would you say, just a gut feeling, you know, of businesses in America are starting to put their toes in the water? I would say it's still very small, even though we're... We're in a very exciting conference here, and keep in mind, we are in San Francisco. The green bubble. In the green <laughs> bubble. And so 
you know, in a bubble, it looks like, you know, everybody that you speak to knows something about this and is wanting to get into uh, a portion of the business that has a green, um, a green application. But the truth be told that, you know, the average person in America is just beginning to even know what does that mean. So we're in the earliest, earliest stages. I would say if it's, and I'm being, I'm being um, conservative, but you know, five percent mm-hmm. maybe. It's very, yeah. very small. And it's it's how you measure it. I mean, people who make a choice to bring a cloth bag to a supermarket instead of plastic. I would give them some credit if they choose to buy an organic strawberry one time because they understand now a little bit better about pesticides. I'd give them some credit. But on a large scale, no, it, people aren't making major wholesale changes. I think one of the things that's really going on that a lot of smart business people are going to recognize, it's the business-to-business money that is going to be enormous. Sure, the consumer trend is there, and there's going to be consumer demand for more green and organic and natural products. But if you offer a product or service that goes from a business to a business, then your 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 uh, your impact is multifold. Because you can impact your vendors, as Walmart has done exactly. in a big way. Exactly. Let's get down to some specifics. What was your role in developing Naked Juice? Uh, I joined a high school friend of mine uh, in the earliest earliest days, and we we basically built the business together, starting by selling juice for a glass on the beach uh, for a dollar a glass. And we started in Southern California with the vision that. People wanted to eat more healthfully, and starting with juice, they just didn't know where or how. So we wanted to bring healthy, fresh food to consumers through conventional retail. What's naked about your product? Well, at the time, everything was made to order. It was made only from fresh ingredients, no concentrates, no purees, made and delivered to the store within 24 hours. That model doesn't really exist anymore, but at the time, it, it, it uh, it was really revolutionary. What about organic? We had organic products. Now, here's the, to the point of, of where you are in the curve. When we had about 25 items, 10 of them were organic. Consumers in the 80s were not willing to pay the price differential. We ended up settling on two, and the rest were all natural, but only two of the 10 organic actually made it. I think consumers were not ready to pay extra eight months ago, it seems. <laughs> That's how quickly things are changing. And uh, keep in mind that what Danny just remarked to is that, you know, it did uh, really get down to those small numbers. But we believe, and I think most people you speak to who come out of this long uh, seed planting uh, side of the business, we believe that two was better than zero. And so we were okay with that. We were like, okay, if we are going to do this, we're going to be happy with that number, and we're going to—we're not going to be stupid. We're going to actually understand that in order to get a foothold in those market centers, we are happy to have the majority of it be conventional, conventional, but we're willing to pay the price in order to get those two on the shelf. Right. And my partner, who was the visionary and the founder of Naked, Jimmy, he stayed in the juice business and has a company called Evolution, where he offers fresh, organic fruit and vegetables and juice in Southern California now. Okay, so you probably learned a lot growing that company. Uh, If you can summarize what you did right, what you did wrong, and then we'll get into specifics that will apply to a more general business owner. What we did right is that we believed in ourselves. We had a strong uh, commitment to our vision, and we didn't take no for an answer. And we had the youth and energy to support that. So uh, that was some things we did right. Some things that we could have done better is we didn't have the right gray hair around. We didn't have enough people with seasoned experience to help us through some some challenging times that all businesses face. Um, We picked the right market. Southern California was obviously a hotbed for healthy foods in a large enough population and close enough to the supply line. So the green tide is definitely rising as we speak, as the glaciers melt. How can companies take advantage of this shift and this 
hopeful beginning to the sea change? I think how they can most specifically take advantage, and we've talked about this in our talk, is that they have to really identify who they are, what their values are, because that's really going to be what's the rubber, rubber on the road, is if you know who you are and you know what your values are, those values should align to the products or services that you are trying to offer. And I think that's really, from a very basic, fundamental point of view, if you're going to go into a business like this with the kind of rise of the tide and with competition coming in, your values, who you are, what you believe in, and align those values with a product or a service that you know that you can market successfully, I think that's the beginning of a good idea. And is all the competition, no doubt, is good for the environment, but is this a good environment to start a business or... You know, are, because the consciousness is just being raised, are there just going to be a few leaders who are really going to be the winners for the next year or two? I think there will be breakout companies, which is the case in any industry. You see those great industry leaders break out. But I think uh, we're so early in the curve, and as we remarked, too, that it's just such a small percentage of the population that's even aware at this point. I think this is a wide-open, big opportunity. And at the same time, the bigger the opportunity, the bigger the responsibilities. You said something about knowing if you want to be a niche product or service or scale. Right. Why is that important, to know where you're going? Well, the basic reason for you to actually have done your homework on that is capital raising. And at the end of the day, uh, this is really becomes a very compelling a moment in a business person's life that if they are going to be a niche player, then those needs, those capital intensive needs can be a little uh, less stringent. But if you're going to be a broadline player and you're really going to want to launch a national company, then of course those constraints are going to be capital. And because the timing is good, and if timing is everything, a lot of players are jumping jumping into the water, forget putting their toes in. Uh, how can they avoid getting all wet, as you said in your catchy title? Well, we've talked about cash, and that's a critical element. Um, also, seeing what, um, being clear on what product or service you offer and being able to um, communicate that both if it's a consumer product, that's one thing, but if it's a, I'm going to go back to this business-to-business model because I think a lot of people um, aren't aware of just how much opportunity there is in helping another company do a better job fulfilling their vision of wanting to become a more uh, responsible or green business. And, you know, simple and obvious and minor but still important examples are some people in the hospitality trade, the ho uh, hotel business, who are switching, for instance, the um, shampoos and soaps that they offer in the hotel rooms or the food on their menu or co organic cotton sheets on their beds. All of those things, those companies can sell to the Marriott's and Hilton's and Hyatt's and get them on board. Mm -hmm. And uh, you say advances in technology can be both positive and negative because things are changing so quickly. That opens up opportunities, but it can also make you oh so last century, you know, in a couple of months. Yeah. So uh, in, in a rapidly evolving industry, it goes without question that this is really the backbone a lot of times, especially for a small business. So all your, your internal reporting and information systems and so forth have to be really, really professional. That requires money, of course, because if you're going to go out and buy a software package to manage your, your finances, you know, that can be costly. So it's really important to understand that even for a small business now to compete, those kind of things have to be um, Best in class. It has to be best in class, and it has to be organized in the budget. Mm -hmm. One of your topics was problems are opportunities, and I love the example about TerraCycle because they're taking something that was waste. It's just like the old French fry grease, you know, from the fast food restaurants becoming fuel for somebody's car. Right. Looking at waste and turning it into 
something right. productive. Yeah, Tom, who owns TerraCycle and started it with his partner, says he's in the worm poop business. And uh, he's an ex- Can we say that on the radio? <laughs> <laughs> he's an ex-Princeton uh, uh, guy. And basically they took um, product that was coming out of the cafeterias and either going into landfill or possibly into compost. And they, they were paid to take this waste. And then they started composting it with worms. And they found that they had a very effective organic... Uh, plant food, and then they developed this amazing recycling or reusing program, collecting PET bottles from regardless of the manufacturer, washing them, cleaning them, and putting this wonderful plant, organic plant food in, and then convincing the retailers across the country that they too can be a greener retailer by offering this cool product. Did you have something to add? No, I think it's just the absolute um, example of what it takes, this entrepreneurial spirit. Because most of us, of course, we might look at something and say, oh, that's a terrible problem, and just walk away. An entrepreneur will look at it and say, that's a terrible problem, and I'm going to find the solution. I think that's the dividing line when you're talking about great entrepreneurs. They just don't see it that way. They see it very differently. As an opportunity. As an opportunity. And is it a good idea to look for a platform on which to get upon where it's appropriate and look for potential partners? Uh, partners in what regard? Well, uh, if I were to partner with another person who is supplying green media, would that be a way to go? Or is there really something, to, if you've been an early adopter, to benefit from, you know, I've, I've been here for the bad days, now let me be on my own for the return on investment? Or does it often make sense to team up with somebody doing something similar or the same as you, to be a bigger entity? Well, there, there's, there's no one answer. I mean, part of that is do the part that you like best, and if you can find somebody, either an employee or a subcontractor or a partner, who loves and does the other part really well, then that's great, and a smaller piece of a bigger pie can also be financially rewarding as well as to get your get you your lifestyle back. Mm-hmm. So you say look for the gray matter, look for the senior experienced employees, and also look for the, the brainy folks inside and outside the head. That's always a good thing, obviously, experiences. And, and that's the interesting thing about this wave is, you know, not a lot of people have experience in the green zone. So you see a lot of, you know, entrepreneurs, be it in business or media, you know, trying to figure out how to do this quickly. And it's, it's an exciting time. It's also, in a way, kind of dangerous because I'm sure some people will not do their research or due diligence before they, you know, raise a lot of money. We remember the dot-com bubble. Why is this not likely to be just a fad that's going to go poof? Well, Danny and I live here in the Bay Area, and, of course, we experienced the dot-com bubble. And so we saw it, we lived it, we breathed it, and we were actually, uh, from time to time, asked to weigh in on some of these ventures and give it a score, give it a rating. And why this is so different is that this is real critical stuff now. The dot-com industry was not up against the kind of things that we're up against now. This is really the survival. Survival. (laughs) I mean, I don't want to be too dramatic, but it's true. We're at a place in all of our lives where we're looking at what happens to the next generation of kids. And so, you know... This is a, this is not a baloney. This is the real deal. We're really in a place where we really are looking at our own uh, our own lives and how are we going to find a way through. And so this is not like some technology company 
who is, uh, has some idea about how they're going to, um, you know, get a capitalization of, you know, $100 million and, and how are we going to do that? And, and then five years later, the company is completely gone. I mean, this is not what Danny and I have been involved in. We've been involved in businesses that stick because, and the reason why they stick is because they are meaningful and they have a place in the world that is around us looking so fragile. And so this is all about building up infrastructure that is more stable, more real, more environmentally sound, and really speaks to the hearts and minds of people who are really worried about this. And among the many ironies is that this is the healthier stuff has been called the alternative. The alternative to what? The more toxic examples? And I guess the whole goal is to make it reverse that equation and make the alternative the mainstream. I, I think that's happening. And although the numbers might be small to some, the organic food industry just as recently as four years ago was only 1% of sales. And last year, in 2006, it was 3% of all food sales. In 2007, we expect it to be considerably higher. The goal in our industry is 10% by 2010. 10 for 10 is sort of the goal. And I think as people become aware of the personal benefits, and it's convenient, and it's affordable, uh, there's no reason why they won't do it. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about money. You mentioned one thing about raising money. One key is to know if you're going to be big or small in the beginning or as soon as you can. What are some other things that you should keep in mind that investors are looking for? Well, people invest in people. And so they have to believe in the vision and the leadership of the founders or the core team of people, or there will be no uh, very little likelihood of the money coming forward. Then they obviously need to see that there's an enormous market potential that is untapped where their capital will make a significant difference um, and that uh, the competition, the competitive environment is such that they're, they feel like they have some sort of advantage. I mean, those are some of the main elements that unique product and service, large market, the capital makes a difference, and most importantly, that they believe in the people. Due to the nature of green angels, or, or maybe that's my question, are angels who are investing in environmentally, you know, proactive companies, businesses, and socially you know, aware companies, are they any more generous about the return on investment in patient, or is this really Marginal. still just for the cash? No. no. When you're in the money business, um, the metrics are pretty well defined, and this may have on the surface a very nice, touchy-feely, you know, people show up and they don't have on ties. They, they come in their khakis and, you know, and they're not dressed like Wall Street folks. But the truth be told, the constraints that are in the capital business, you know, raising money, are the same everywhere. And so you're going to be facing the same kind of stringent due diligence that um, that everybody has to go through. There's no no way around this. It just may look touchy-feely on the surface, but the constraints are the same. Kumbaya is not the main song. No. <laughs> so cash is still king. It's all, it is about money and profit. But these people are also aware. They read the newspapers, listen to the reports, and they have kids. Are you starting to see any kind of shift? Are they really? Are some of them at least trying to make this world a better place beyond lip service? I, I think they are. I mean, I don't want to say cash is king to the exception of other values. I think that the uh, social responsible investing market um, being a positive filter or a negative filter um, sort of approach is broadening and expanding. When it talks, talking about individual companies who need to raise money, yes, you do want to partner up when you can with somebody who, as Janet said, will hold the same financial uh, uh, rigor but also appreciates what you're trying to do and therefore there's an emotional and a, a psychological component that they're behind you for reasons beyond just the money. So when times get tough, there could be some greater understanding and appreciation for what you're up against. 
You read a list of qualities that uh, if you don't have most of them, you probably shouldn't become an ecopreneur. Yeah, so um, this is based on our own personal experience. These are the kind of qualities that Danny and I have always, uh, we've, this is who we are. And so I think uh, this is pretty, pretty uh, vetted. So you see things differently. You're not fond of rules. You have little respect for the status quo. <laughs> you explore, you create, you invent, you inspire, and you have to be a little crazy. You are usually a troublemaker. <laughs> you can't be ignored. You are relentless. You make a contribution every day. Terrific. You say you have to see things a little differently. Those of us who have been seeing the world through green-tinted lenses, isn't it nice that that tint is somehow spreading? <laughs> yeah. We, we couldn't be more gratified to have been asked to come and speak at this conference. For us, this is a watershed uh, moment. And and also for Co-America to be growing this business all over the United States and hosting these conferences in, in Chicago, here, and in other places in the U.S. is a great confirmation of what's happening. I agree. And when I started in this a decade ago, they had been around for some time, Co-op America. Thank you so much for your words of wisdom, and let's hope the future is green. Or as someone said, not at all. Thank you, Betsy. Thank you, Betsy. I've been speaking with Danny Rubenstein and Janet DiGiovanna with Dash Advisors. You've been listening to Green Biz Radio. For the latest daily news on business, the environment, and the bottom line, and to sign up for our free newsletters, visit greenbiz.com.